but it also poses the question, how can a church ever reform itself if tradition is viewed as the same authority as scripture? And that that is a huge problem, not just for the Russian Orthodox Church in the 17th century, but for all Orthodox churches even today. Because in the in the mind of the believers, the old believers, to change the number of fingers you use to make the sign of the cross is to change the revelation of God. It's the same as just taking a verse out of the Bible and rewriting it. For them, there's no difference. So this high view of tradition meant that any reform was going to be difficult. And one of the main leaders was a guy called Avokum. And for him, the, the three-fingered way of making the sign of the cross was it was the mark of the beast. So you can see that there's absolutely no desire to even look at the possibility of reformation here. This was presented as a case of, will you side with the Antichrist or will you stay true to the tradition of the church? On this episode of Theology for the People, we dive into the interesting topic of Orthodox Christianity and Russian Orthodoxy in particular. My guest is Shane England. Shane is a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. He was also a missionary in Eastern Ukraine. And in this episode, Shane and I talk about a schism which took place in the Russian Orthodox Church called the Raskol of 1666. This schism is important because it highlights some of the distinctive features of Orthodox theology and Russian Orthodox theology uniquely. For example, we talk about the role of tradition in Orthodox thinking as being equal to or superior to scripture and how this theological method poses a difficulty when it comes to bringing about any kind of reform in the church. Furthermore, we talk about how Russian Orthodox theology plays a role in the current war in Ukraine. I hope you'll enjoy this discussion, and I'll be back at the end with some closing thoughts. Here's the episode. Welcome to Theology for the People. I'm joined once again by Shane England from Ennis, Ireland. Hi, Shane. Hi, Nick. Thank you for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about an area of theology, which with I'm not very familiar, and I'm guessing my listeners aren't either. And that has to do with the Russian Orthodox Church and some history behind a schism that took place in 1666. I would say that in my experience, I studied in England for both my degrees, and I'm in a context in the West where studying Eastern Orthodox movements and theology has just not really been a part of of much of my study. I mean, there was some of it, but, you know, when we talk about the Reformation, what's important to remember, like, the Orthodox Church didn't experience the Reformation. I mean, it touched them in some ways, but yeah. uh, it's almost like a different history that they have, yeah. and yet significant, right? Because a lot of the world does live in the Orthodox sphere. And, yes. and of course, the Russian Orthodox Church has a very big part to play in, in the life of Russian people today, and those have implications for geopolitics and all that. So what is the rascal of 1666? Why is it important for us to know anything about it? You could say it's a case of two bald men fighting over a comb, but that would be a very Western way of looking at this. When we talk about the actual causes for this schism, I'm sure people will maybe even laugh. They seem so trivial. But when we understand the reasons behind the passion and the violence that resulted in this schism in 1666, I think we will probably have a maybe a better understanding of 
the nature of Russian orthodoxy as a whole, even today, I think that can be helpful, but to, to basically give the, the simple answer in, in 1666, there was a split in the Russian Orthodox church over some liturgical reforms that were introduced by the leader of the Russian Orthodox church. His name was Patriarch Nikon. And these reforms were not limited to, but including how many fingers to use when you made the sign of the cross. It used to be two and Nikon proposed three fingers. The spelling of the name Jesus in, in Russian to add an extra E. The number of genuflections in the liturgy from two to three. And some very, very minor positions in the liturgy that were adapted as well. Now, people listening to that would think that's incredible that that would even be an issue. But this led to thousands of people losing their lives. It led to a schism that kept going until 1971. But it, it manifests, I think, the some of the internal dynamics that are built into Russian Orthodoxy that go that go way back into, into the history of Russian Orthodoxy. And the reason why this reform was so explosive is because it touched on some of the very primal understandings of a lot of Russian Christians about their church and its place in the world. And so it, it's for that reason, I think it is interesting to, to try and understand why, why it went so wrong. I have watched some different things on maybe YouTube where like in the forest in Siberia, there's these people who have created a commune and they are the old believers. And so the old believers would be the ones who still hold out, right, against the, the changes that were implemented in 1666. And it's, it's so interesting. I've always kind of been curious, like, what are old believers? What do they believe that's different? I know that they do kind of consider themselves, you know, to be separate from <laughs> other Rus Russian Orthodox people. Now, I just want to bring in the, like, the personal part of this. Shane, you were a missionary in Kharkiv, Ukraine, which is the eastern part of Ukraine. And I'm sure that Russian Orthodoxy, particularly at the time that you were there, was a dominant force in regard to Christianity and maybe even to politics. So could you just Absolutely. speak to that for a moment? Yeah. So I did live in Eastern Ukraine and the fact that Russian Orthodoxy was such a strong cultural and theological presence in Ukraine is, is part of that story too. How did that happen? And, and that feeds into some of the questions concerning the emergence of the Russian Orthodox Church. So while I lived there, there was for a long time in Ukraine, a, a question of whether the Ukrainian Orthodox Church should be its own entity, if it could be autocephalous, so self-governing. And in the world of Eastern Orthodoxy, which is a, a fellowship of 15 self-governing churches under the headship of the Ecumenical Patriarch in Istanbul, formerly Constantinople, the question of whether Ukraine could become an independent church was hugely significant culturally and political, politically for the Russian believers. And many were adamant against that. Many would have felt that that was a betrayal of the, the destiny, the God-given destiny of the Russian Orthodox Church, which is to be the guardian of the Slavic people. And it is to be their spiritual home and to removed Ukraine from the control of the Russian Orthodox Church, it was felt, would be a gross case of interfering with the God-given mandate of, of the Russian Church. 
And it is interesting when we go back to this, this great schism that occurred in 1666, a lot of those same concerns are at play. And just to give listeners sort of the background here, the sort of the mother church for the Slavic people is Kiev, would be the, the Kiev Rus Empire, which in the 10th century adopted Christianity. And they adopted that from the Eastern Empire, from the Byzantine Empire. So they, they were always in fellowship with the ecumenical patriarch in Constantinople as the figurehead of their Christian fellowship. However, things really changed in 1439. And that was at the Roman Catholic 17th Ecumenical Council, the Council of Florence, which was an attempt by the Catholic Church to end a schism between the Eastern Orthodox churches and the Roman Catholic Church that began in 1054. And surprisingly enough, it actually succeeded. So in 1439, the Eastern Orthodox churches signed the Union of Florence, where they agreed to come back into fellowship with the Roman Catholic Church, even recognize the Pope as the head of the church, and even recognize the Latin additions to the creed, the filioque. And the reason they did that in 1439 was because of the threat by the, the Ottomans to overthrow the Eastern Empire. I mean, wasn't it a bit like, I think that's such an interesting story because I was in Istanbul twice mm. in the past, I don't know, five years. I was there. And if you take the metro in from the airport, it's so interesting that you go right past the old ramparts of the fortress mm. where, they, where they eventually lost in the 1400s there, that battle. But essentially part of the reason why the Christians lost Constantinople was because the Western Christians, the Roman Christians had come in and essentially said, unless you recognize the authority of the Pope, we won't, we won't help you. And we'll almost even hold you hostage and like held them under siege for a minute. And essentially basically said in, in layman's terms, say uncle, or else we won't let you go out of this headlock. And so finally they said, okay, fine. We said uncle. And essentially that document that you're referring to is the result of them finally like acquiescing just so that Rome would leave them alone. And then Rome was like, okay, cool. Now we're good. And they left, but because they had torn down all, all the ramparts and things like that, the protective barriers, then the Ottomans were able to easily overcome Constantinople just within a few years. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of bad blood. But the, the Eastern Orthodox churches, they caved to the pressure. They signed up to this union. But a lot of the, the monastic leaders, even within Constantinople, were outraged. And many even felt and said at the time that they would rather see an Islamic mosque in the heart mm. of Constantinople than a Roman Catholic church. If, if that was the option, then let's just take, let's just take the Ottomans because of the terrible history between the Eastern and Western churches, going back to the crusades when the Latin crusaders actually captured Constantinople and plundered it and did all sorts of horrible things. But to go back to Russia after 1439, when the Eastern Orthodox churches agreed to have this union with the Western Roman Catholic church, the only major church to refuse to sign up to this was the Russian Orthodox Church. And the reason they did that was because they felt, obviously, they had a massive distrust of the West. They felt it was a complete capitulation to the heresies of the Western Church. And they went into schism with Constantinople over this question. They even deposed the Patriarch of Kiev and they got rid of him. They set up their own metropolitan of of Moscow. So the, already there is a power struggle between Kiev and Moscow over this question of the West. 
the sad thing, like you said, is that Constantinople fell in 1453. And for many in the Russian Orthodox Church, that was God's judgment on the Greek Christians for agreeing to this union, that it was the judgment of God had come upon the Greek churches. And what emerges in Russian Orthodoxy after the fall of Constantinople is this idea, and it's postulated in the 16th century by a, by a, a Russian theologian. And he said that the first Rome, which was, you know, ancient Rome, which fell to the barbarians in the fifth century, said the first Rome has fallen. The second Rome has fallen. And he meant Constantinople, but he said there has arisen a third Rome and there will not be a fourth. And from this comes the idea that Moscow, the Russian Orthodox Church, is now the one true church. And the last place on earth that true Christianity will reside until the second coming of Christ. And a lot of sort of national ideology was wrapped into that. A lot of, I would say, a lot of unorthodox theology, even within Eastern Orthodoxy as a whole. Eastern Orthodoxy prided itself on being a union of different nations, but we see emerging in the 16th century in Russia, this idea that they are the last true church, the last holdout. And we see the emergence of this idea of a Russian world, a Rustimir. We hear that in the news even today, which is ironic. The idea that God has entrusted to the Russian Orthodox Church the spiritual well-being of all Slavic people, even if they were aware of that or not. And so from that emerges Moscow's encroaching into, into Ukraine, and eventually they take over Kiev, and they subjugate the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, and that just becomes the Russian Orthodox Church. And all of this is sort of this manifold destiny for Russia as God's people to be the third Rome, the last place where the true church will remain until the coming of the Antichrist and Christ returns. And so you have a huge messianic belief built into the Russian church at this time, that they are on a God-given mission to preserve the church and to preserve all Slavic people as part of that. So any idea of an independent Ukrainian church or, you know, a breakaway church in Estonia or wherever, that was contrary to what they felt was their God-given mission as the last seat of, of true Christianity. So following on from that, the, the Russian state went through a time of political uncertainty and political trouble in the 16th century. And it, it came out of that time with a desire to see reforms in the church. So a lot of problems that had come into the Russian Orthodox Church at this time were to do with the way that Russian Orthodox service was led. There were problems with clergy not being trained, not leading the church services as they should. And there was also the, the scandalous problem, as many saw it, of the way that the liturgy was, was presented. And at this time in Russia, the church services could last, you know, nearly six hours with, if the full litur liturgy was sung. And so to get around that, many churches would have multiple choirs singing different parts of the liturgy at the same time. You'd have, you know, up to seven or eight 
different parts of the liturgy occurring at the same time. And obviously no one could understand what was going on, but the church service could be condensed. And so people at this time began to think that, you know, God is not happy with Russia because of the way the church has gone, because the church is not taking its mandate to be the, the true church serious. And so they said that we need to reform the church. And there were certain monastic leaders in the Russian Orthodox Church, a monastic leader called Ivan Niranov. And he said that we need to reform the liturgy. We need to sing the true liturgy and not have this many voice liturgy that was just trying to get through the church service as quickly as possible. So there were a lot of people in the Russian church that felt that there needed to be reform. There needed to be clear teaching and singing of the liturgy. And to do that, a man was elected, Patriarch Nikon, and he was seen as one of these zealots for, for God. And he was, you know, very strong about morality. He led an anti-alcohol campaign when he was a monk and he was trying to keep that Russian church pure. And so he began to introduce some reforms in the way that the Russian liturgy was being sung. But he went further than that. He made the fatal mistake of requesting the input of the Greek church to rewrite some of the liturgical practices, like we talked about using three fingers to make the sign of the cross instead of two, which was the Greek custom, different genuflections and posturings in the liturgy. So he invited Greek Christians to what he felt give the pure liturgy. And that outraged the Russian believers because for them, Greek Christians were the problem. They, they were infected with their compromised faith. They were the ones who had sold out orthodoxy. They were not to be trusted. Russian Christians felt that if the Russian church was going to reform itself, it had to be according to the Russian tradition. It couldn't have any outside influence. And there was a major distrust between some of the more conservative elements in the Russian church and the ecumenical patriarch in Constantinople, the Greek church, whom they felt had a very bad track record because they had compromised with the West. But Nikon, the patriarch, was not one to back down and he pushed ahead with these reforms. And that's when we begin to see the emergence of the old believers. These are not bishops, interestingly enough, almost all the bishops, bar one, Bishop Pavel, sided with the, the patriarch. But the, the revolt happened from monastic leaders and Russian priests who had a very strong view and I would say a, a sort of a glorified view of Russian history. They had this idea that the Russian church up until the reforms proposed by Nikon was pure. It was without sin. It was without fault. Its teaching was pure. Its, its theology was pure. It was not infected by the West, by Greek thought. And they resisted this reform. And, and that gets back to some of the internal, I think, dynamics of the Russian Orthodox Church. You know, it, it's idea that it is the, the true preserver of orthodoxy and outside influences are, are negative and to be avoided. But it also poses the question, how can a church ever reform itself if tradition is viewed as the same authority as scripture. And that, that is also a huge problem, not just for the Russian Orthodox Church in the 17th century, but for all, I think, Orthodox churches even today. Because in the, in the mind of the believers, the old believers, 
to change the number of fingers you use to make the sign of the cross is to change the revelation of God. It's the same as just taking a verse out of the Bible and rewriting it. For them, there's no difference. The, the, the source of tradition is the same as scripture. It is the Holy Spirit. It is the life of the church. So this high view of tradition meant that any reform was going to be difficult, but especially when you brought in the dynamic of bringing outside foreign influences into the church as they saw it, the, the result was a, a radical and fervent opposition to these reforms. And one of the main leaders was a guy called Avokum, who was a priest, an archpriest. And he wrote a book about his experiences, which is one of the first great works of Russian literature. It's a life written by Avokum. And there's an English translation available that happens. It's very interesting to read. And for him, the, the three-fingered way of making the sign of the cross was, it was the mark of the beast. It was the false prophet. It was the dragon. It was the man of sin. It was absolutely the precursor to the antichrist. So you can see that there's absolutely no desire to even look at the possibility of reformation here. This was, this was presented as a case of, will you side with the antichrist or will you stay true to the tradition of the church? And the patriarch Nikon wouldn't back down. I don't know if you've experienced this, Shane, where you're at, but where we're at, I have noticed that there's been a movement, particularly within the last, I don't know, 15 years that I've noticed and been aware of. And that is that in Western society, but I'd say particularly with people who grew up in American evangelical circles, there can be yeah. a bit of a fascination with Eastern Orthodoxy. And I think that what is attractive to them, you know, perhaps growing up in an evangelical environment is that they feel like perhaps they've missed out on historical roots or tradition and things like that. And so the Orthodox Church is attractive. And one of the things that makes it attractive is that the Orthodox Church says that they can trace an unchanged background, right? They haven't changed their liturgy, haven't changed their doctrine since, I think it's somewhere in the 200s. So they say that they haven't changed it since then and they can like prove that lineage. I think that's interesting, but also from a theological method perspective, like how do we do, how do we create our theology? Essentially, their theological method would be to say that scripture takes a subservient role to the tradition and the writings of certain fathers. And I think it's interesting that, that it's only certain fathers who they view as having particular authority. But I think, you know, even just given that time from Christ until they can say, okay, this was the moment from which we can say that nothing has changed. I mean, you're putting a lot of weight onto those people getting everything right and not being influenced by outside influences other than the Holy Spirit. But any thoughts on those, those things? Yeah, it is an incredibly, I think, comforting and powerful argument to to believe that you are part of an unbroken lineage that goes back to Christ and the apostles. But we have to have the courage to say that that's simply ahistorical. Much of the traditions that are seen as ancient in the Eastern Orthodox churches were unknown in the time of the apostles, unknown in the time of the early Christians. Certainly the role of icons is utterly unknown to scripture. And to get around that, Orthodoxy, I think, at least in its more popular manifestations, maybe not in its academic circles, but in its popular manifestations, draws upon mythology. So we have the idea that Andrew 
is an icon. Luke is an icon painter. You know, we have all these stories about icons being painted by the apostles and their followers, but th that is just mythology. And much of, I think, the appeal for this unbroken lineage, it doesn't rest on historical or even theological arguments. It, it rests on national identity and a national mythology. And, and, and that's, that, you know, that's, that's not a foundation to, to build a church belief on. Absolutely not. But it's emotively hugely appealing. And it was for many of the old believers, for them, the idea of changing the things that they had done was unacceptable. And, and that comes, I think, because of their view of scripture is that it is the product of the church, the same way as the liturgy is a product of the church. The church produces scripture, the church produces liturgy. And so they don't have a clear distinction between those two aspects of their life. For them, they are the same source. And in that case, reform is, is always going to be difficult, if not impossible, if you're trying to reform any church. And especially if you're trying to reform tradition, to what do you appeal? The priest Avakum, one of the leaders of the old believers, he said that he wrote a pamphlet drawing from scripture to defend the use of two fingers, making the sign of the cross that now that work hasn't survived, but I mean, I, I would be fascinated to know what scriptures were used. There are none to defend tradition. You're going to have to appeal to tradition. You're going to have to appeal to people that came before you and Nikon, the patriarch who opposed Avakum, likewise could appeal to tradition. So tradition versus tradition gets you nowhere. That is why scripture has to be the norm that rules all norms. It has to be the, the sole infallible authority for the life and teaching of the church. And here's a good example of, of how tradition, far from maintaining unity and purpose, actually destroys the church, tears it apart. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. Hi friends, Brian Broderson here, and I want to let you know about the CGN International Pastors and Leaders Conference coming up here at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, June 25th through the 28th. Our theme this year is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And oh, how we need the Spirit of God uh, to be upon us in these days. So we're going to be digging down into that great text from Isaiah 61. We're going to be looking at all the different facets of it. we got a number of great voices that are going to be speaking to us. We're going to have times of prayer and worship and lots of fellowship and enjoying meals together and all kinds of wonderful things. So if you would like to be part of this conference coming up in June, uh, please get signed up today. You can do that at conference.calvarychapel.com. Once again, that is the CGN International Pastors and Leaders Conference, June 25th to the 28th. Hope to see you there. And so the old believers, you know, they they absolutely refused to compromise. And there was a church synod in 1666 in Moscow. Strangely enough, at this church synod, the patriarch Nikon was deposed. And the reason he was deposed is because the Tsar, the ruler of Russia, felt that he had accumulated too much political power. But the church agreed with the reforms of Nikon. So they pushed those reforms through, even though he was now deposed. And that meant that the old believers now were declared heretics. And Again, this is an interesting aspect of Russian Orthodoxy at this time, because again, it goes against the established norms of Orthodox theology. Um, 
in traditionally, anyway, within orthodoxy, there was a distinction between heresy and schism. Basil the Great in the fourth century articulated what would have been the classic distinction between the two. A heresy concerns the, the primary teaching and dogma of the church concerning the person working of Jesus Christ, the, the ecumenical creeds. But schism is a dispute over the sort of the economy or the life of the church, including questions of tradition. And churches and leaders can dispute about these questions. And, and Basil says, that's not the same as heresy. That would be division in the church, which is schism, but it's not the same as heresy. But what happened in the old believers split is that the Russian Orthodox Church said, no, this is heresy. To refuse to submit to the new liturgical reforms is a matter of heresy. So the, the main Moscow church came down so heavily against the people that opposed this that they wouldn't even regard them as Christians anymore. They regarded them as, you know, agents of the devil. They enlisted the states to severely persecute. And so the punishment was that because the old believers had refused to sing the new liturgy and make the sign of the cross, the punishment was that they would get their hands cut off and their tongues cut out. And, and that was a means to punish, you know, what the, the parts of their body that they had refused to submit, you could say, to the church. So this resulted in mass persecution and you begin to see breakaway communities going into Siberia, into the forests that are even there today. We've talked about that, how these communities still, even today, there are a few old believers there. And they maintained that the church, the Russian Orthodox Church had now gone into heresy, that it was now the agent of the Antichrist. And many of these old believers believed that because the Russian Orthodox Church was the third and final Rome, that what was happening in the church was the end times, that this was indeed the Antichrist because they fervently believed that the Russian Orthodox Church could never be led into such heresy, they believed, unless this was the unfolding of God's plan as they understood the end of the world. And so there was a strong eschatological expectation. And you see a lot of the, the resistance here, again, is to these common themes we see throughout Russian Orthodoxy. The resistance to influence from the outside, even, even within the Orthodox Church. The, the Greek Christians are viewed as suspicious, as compromised. The idea that the Russian Orthodox Church has a mandate to be the one true church and to be the, the source of Orthodoxy for all Slavic Christians and there can be no compromise on that. And that by bringing in these reforms, according to Greek tradition, that the church had lost that mandate. And so it was the end of the world. The old believers then, they sort of split into two different groups. One were the section with priests and one without priests. And the old believers with priests continued to worship typically as, as they understood their forefathers to do with the liturgy and the old rite. But the, the branch without priests they believed that because this was the age of the Antichrist, that grace was no longer evident and therefore they could no longer have priests and they could no longer have sacraments. And there was a further, you know, move away even from the church as altogether corrupted and, you know, that they wouldn't even have priests anymore because they believed that the age of grace had now ended and God was going to do something incredible before the advent of Christ. The leaders of this revolt, Avakum being one of the main leaders, they were arrested, they, they were tortured, they were tried to get to recant, but they refused. 
Avakum's own children, a priest that, you know, in the Russian Orthodox Church can marry. So his wife's and sons were threatened with execution. So they recanted. And so for Avakum, that was, you know, he was devastated by that. And he called on them to, to basically repent of their cowardice. Um, and eventually he was burnt to death for his, for his adamant belief. And the old believers, they continued throughout the centuries, often persecuted and often marginalized. And there still are old believers today who maintain those old rights. But, you know, it is interesting that all of this emerges from some underlying currents that were under the surface. The reason why it exploded so violently was because of the foundations that the Russian Orthodox Church had built its own identity on. And that identity, like I said, was that it was the third Rome. In other words, it was the final act of the church before the second coming. And so it has a strong sense of national, sort of almost messianic identity that here is a nation set apart for God to be the true church and to defend and fight for orthodoxy. And also we have this strong sense that goes all the way back to the, the Council of Florence in 1439, when the Russian Orthodox Church rejected any kind of union, the strong sense that outside influences, even within Orthodoxy, so even the Greek Orthodox Christians, let alone the West, you know, which is complete anathema, are to be feared and are to be disregarded. And there, there is a strong sense that those popular ideas are definitely manifest again in orthodoxy as we see it today. The, the orthodox world is once again facing schisms. In 2018, the Russian Orthodox Church broke off communion with Constantinople over the question of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. So in 2018, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church was granted independence within the Eastern Orthodox communities. And for the Russian Orthodox Church, that again was the Greek Christians imposing their views on the Russian church and taking away from them what they felt was their God-given mandate to be the true church for all Slavic people, part of the Russian world, whether Ukrainians wanted that or not, they felt that that was their divine mission. And so you see these, these currents definitely repeating themselves. Yeah. I think one thing that English speaking listeners may not know. So there's this phrase in Russian, Ruski Mir, which you mentioned earlier. But it has a double meaning, right? On the one hand, it Correct. means the Russian world, but it also means mm -hmm. the Russian peace. Kind of like yeah. how we tend to think about the Pax Romana, like the peace of Rome. They have this concept that the Russian sphere must be kept in this, basically Mother Russia will bring peace to yeah. all of its environs, if you will. And, yeah. and therefore they need to stay within the sphere in order for that peace to be realized. Which, which of course is manifesting itself right now in geopolitical mm -hmm. ways in Ukraine. It's interesting. I've been yep. to Ukraine, you know, every year, including this one, I think with one exception over the past, I'm going to say like eight years. And it was wow. interesting after the split of the Ukrainian Russian Orthodox Church that now it becomes very clear. Like when you see a church, that's one of the first questions or one of the things that people look for. Is this a Kiev yes patriarchate or is this a Moscow patriarchate? Because there still are Moscow patriarchate churches within Ukraine. I noticed one thing that happened is like I was in a smaller town in, U in Ukraine and the main church had become a Kiev patriarchate. And so they had literally like 
tried to start a Russian patriarchate church, but it was almost laughable. They had built it within literally a shipping container that had been like painted and they put like a onion dome mm. on top of it. But that's how small and few people were, were attending. But you can see that there, that, that is manifested. And this was before the invasion in, in the life of people in Ukraine. Well, one thing I want to ask you is this, that in a previous episode, we had talked about the radical reformers of the you know, Western church. And one of the things that they stood for was the separation of the relationship between the church and the state. But one of the things that's really unique about Russian Orthodoxy, I think in particular, is that you know Russia didn't go through many of the things that the Western empires did. So whereas there was like a marriage of church and state and empire, Russia still has that to this day. They, they still are a multi-ethnic empire that has a very distinct marriage of church and state. Um, yeah. So how did this schism of 1666 affect the czar? That's my first question. My second question, you can answer both at the same time, is, okay, what, what do you think is the significance? Like, what do we learn from this schism for the world today, both in Russia and outside of Russia? Yeah, it's great. So I think within Byzantine theology, so if you look at Eastern Orthodoxy as a whole, it has an absolute clear understanding that there can be no church without the state. I mean, and that goes back to Constantine. It goes back to Theodosius, the, uh, who made uh, Empire Christian in 381. And even Constantine described himself as an episcopus to the church. He said, I'm a bishop. I'm, I'm a bishop that looks after the church. And he was still a functioning pagan when he said that. But Byzantine theology has always embraced the role of state as essential to the life of the church. There can be no church without the state. And what happened with the fall of Constantinople was that Russia was the only major Eastern Orthodox country that was not under a pagan government. It was the last of the, the great Orthodox countries that still had a Christian czar. What a result of the old believer schism in 1666, however, was that the Russian government decided that the church had become too powerful. I mean, the country was being torn apart by the church at this stage. So beginning with Peter the Great, the Russian government abolished the Moscow Patriarchy functionally. And, and that's going back to the 17th century with Peter the Great. And he replaced it with a sort of a more secular model of a church synod that he was the president of. That kept going all the way until the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. In 1917, the, the Moscow Patriarchy reestablished itself after the fall of the czars when they were overthrown. But then you had communism for the next 70 years. So it's only really with the fall of communism in 1991 and the emergence of the modern Russian state that the Russian Orthodox Church finds itself in a position back as it was in 1666. Mm. A position where the government, far from trying to stifle its influence, and that goes back to Peter the Great, you know, he really wanted to limit the church's power as much as he could, even in, you know, setting up a a synod of drunkards, he called it, where he would mimic church liturgy and make a mockery out of it. So he was no friend of the church. And that kept going all the way through Catherine the Great, the Romanov Tsars. They all kept that clear subjugation of the church that was under the state. But that all changed with the fall of communism and the emergence of the modern Russian state. 
And now for the first time, we have a Russian Orthodox church that has a very powerful patriarchate that is not afraid to be politically outspoken, but also has the overt support of the state, very much seen as part of the Russian identity and, you know, very much seen as part of the, the, the plan for modern Russia definitely includes the Russian Orthodox Church. That's the perspective of the Russian government. And so now we're actually in a position much closer to 1666, where some of these influences are manifesting themselves that the old believers really were trying to, to push for. And those are the idea that the Russian Orthodox Church in close work with the Russian government is on a God-given mission to basically enforce and to manifest the Russian world as they understand it, which is all Slavic Christians under the authority of the Moscow Patriarchy. There is a strong sense that the West is out to pervert that. There is a strong sense that even within Eastern Orthodoxy, the Greek Christians are seeking to subvert that as it was in the days of Avakum. And so we see a lot of these tendencies manifest itself once again. But I think this goes back to one of the inherent doctrines of Eastern Orthodoxy, which always has had a much stronger connection between the church and state than even medieval Europe had, much stronger. Let's not forget that it was the power to call an ecumenical council was not the decision of the church. It was always the decision of the emperor. It was always a political decision. That began in Nicaea and ran through all of the seven ecumenical councils that the Eastern Orthodox churches accept. The emperor was seen as an icon of Christ on earth. And so I think what the radical reformers in Europe saw as a toxic relationship that they wanted to break away from, this idea of the state and church having indivisible goals and objectives and means, the Russian Orthodox Church really inherited that from the Byzantine world that they adopted Christianity from. But for much of its history, it has been stifled until the last, you know, the last 30 years when it's it actually reemerged in a way that is actually not foreseen for much of its history because of the way that the Russian state under the czars kept a much closer control on the Russian Orthodox Church than we see even today. Any takeaways that like a, a believer in the West who's listening to this would be able to take away from all of these things, looking yeah. at the schism? So obviously we're not too concerned about how many fingers to use when we make the sign of the cross, if we even do that. And that's, that's fair enough. We have a very probably different view of, of worship. We're probably much more open to change and adaptation than obviously the Eastern Orthodox churches are, but there are some lessons that we can learn. Certainly. One lesson is, I think big countries struggle with this more so than maybe living countries, but big countries can have, I think, a over-realized eschatology when their political circumstances change. Russia in 1666, many Christians felt that the end of the world had come because their great country was undergoing reform as, or corruption as they saw it. And that's the lens that they looked through and saw the world, it was through their own nation and their goals and aspirations and the threats to those. And I think big countries, you know, historically have often struggled with that is that when things change or when problems come on the domestic front that our theology sort of 
adapts to that circumstance and suddenly it's, it, this is the end of the world. And if, if that is a, a knee-jerk reaction, often a better way to approach that is to spend time with Christians in other parts of the world who are facing sometimes far greater problems than we will ever know or have known in our generation, in our, in our contexts. And it can be humbling to realize that, you know, the world doesn't necessarily revolve around our patch and that God is doing things all over the world. And, you know, other believers are facing much different and much more difficult problems, but maybe have a much more thankful approach and less pessimism. I think another thing that we can learn from the, the Rascal of 1666 is, of course, the danger of having a golden age view of church history. This idea that it was perfect, you know, back when, and now it's not perfect and it's, it's terrible. And, you know, for many old believers, they, they had this completely mythical view of Russian history that it was perfect until 1666 when the patriarch Nikon introduced these reforms and this idea of a golden age can often make us unable to, to evaluate and to critique where we've received our theology from. And that's not to say we need to be dismissive of where we have received our theology from or who we have inherited it from. But if we had this fantasy of golden ages that obviously never existed, but if we have this view that it was all so perfect in the past, that can blind us to the need for reform within our own churches because we have this view that, well, what we received is perfect. It's, it, it, it comes from this golden age when everything was so good in this particular church or denomination and there were so many great things happening. But, you know, that can often blind us to obviously needs for reform according to the Bible if we just view the past as a perfect place that we've never been to. And, of course, there, there is the danger of tradition. I love church history. I love studying the past, but there is a danger that comes with an adamant and dogmatic view of tradition, and it can easily replace the centrality of the word of God in the life of the church. And that is never a good thing, because if that is the case, I think we've mixed up our priorities for sure. Yeah, and I think about Reformation principles come into play here. I mean, when we talk about sola scriptura, I think what we're really saying is what the, the Anglicans would call prima scriptura. We're saying that scripture gets the first right, um, and other uh -huh. things are subjected to scripture and judged by scripture when we do our theology. Yeah. And, and essentially mm -hmm. what we see with the Orthodox Church is a different theological method, and I think it's it's worth looking at this as an example of this is where this theological method can lead to. Here are some of the downfalls and shortcomings of it. But the Reformation mm. principle would be to say that tradition is good and, and should inform us, and yet it must be subject to Scripture and can be judged by Scripture. And, and then, of course, the other Reformation principle, which you've alluded to, would be the one of the Latin phrase, uh, ecclesia reformata semper reformanda, which means the church reformed, always reforming, or the reformed church always is reforming. always reforming. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I, I think that's a, that's a good... Now, of course, those on the Eastern Orthodox side would not agree with those principles, but I think that they, they have borne good fruit, and I think that they're good things. So 
Yeah. Thank you so much, Shane. I just want to say I've enjoyed so much every time you've been on the show and I really appreciate your time and you bringing your expertise and knowledge to our listeners. Thanks, Nick. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. If there's ever a topic that you'd like to learn more about, there's a section on my website where you can submit questions and suggest topics for me to cover. That can be found at nickkady.org. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so yet. That way, when new episodes are posted, they'll be delivered right to your podcast app. And if this episode was helpful, please share it with others. If you'd like to support the podcast, the best way you can do that is by leaving a written review on the Apple Podcast app or on Spotify. Those really help to boost the show in their ratings. So if you would do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, God bless you.